good morning. This is not um, this is not a decision from the elders, unlike what Kevin told you to redecorate the church or scheme to try to get new people uh, traction. It is leftovers from our vacation Bible school, uh, the theme of the gospel island and the treasure. And they did quite a job at decorating the place. I'm very, very impressed. And I'm sure the kids had a lot of fun. And uh, towards the end of service, probably during our praise time, I'm sure you'll hear a little report of the ministry that took place uh, this past Saturday. So thank you all you VBSers for your service and participation. And we've been looking for Jack Sparrow. Nope. Can't go there. Okay, so we are in Matthew chapter 12, not 12, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Last week we ventured from chapter 1 into chapter 2 and we looked at the idea of just the sovereign hand of God in these events that bring us what we know of as a Christmas story, a story that we are very familiar with. But when you dig a little deeper and you look a little bit of history, it is even more profound than what we think it is. Every Christmas that we celebrate the story of the birth of Christ. And we looked at the phenomenon of the star where God wielded his universal power. And he put this special star in the sky, whatever it was or however it came about, the star of Bethlehem. And he used it to guide the wise men, the Magi, to the newborn king. And then we learned how the Magi came from the east. They followed that star. And we found that they were, the Magi were known, renowned for their wisdom. And they were a people group, basically, that were descendants of a tribe among the Medes. So they were priestly descendants. And they were known for their wisdom. They were sought after by kings and rulers of all sorts in the East. And the way that they gained this great wisdom was by their study of astrology and astronomy. Also, their religion. They sought God or the gods. By the way, later on, the religion of the Persian Empire became Zoroastrianism, which was a monotheistic religion. But they also dabbled in the occult. Sorcery to gain the knowledge and all these things cause them to seem to have an inside scoop and to know the things that are and the things that will come. And so they were unmatched in their power and unmatched in their wisdom of the day and their clout in the courts. And they made their way into this little town of Bethlehem, this no to see this person that the world did not know of. And yet, by God's providence, they knew that a king would be born. And they made that five to six hundred mile trip. Something I didn't tell you last week was that also at this time in history, there was this attitude, there was this mindset, a sense or a gut feeling that a a world leader would arise out of Judea. It was the chat or the talk and conversation that sooner or later, this is what's going to happen. Somebody's going to come and that person's going to come from what was considered the east, from the Orient. 
And they will rule us all. Nobody really liked, of course, if you had just been conquered or overpowered by the Roman Empire. I'm sure they appreciated it and liked it, the world at that time, but nobody else liked it. And so there was this sense of this king to be born. So much so that historians wrote about it. Things that we talk about today in our culture, a lot of times we have this sense that something's going to happen. Well, they had this sense. That a king would arise, for instance, Roman historian Suetonius, good Roman name, wrote, There had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Tacitus, another Roman historian, said something very similar. There was a firm persuasion That at this very time, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. So this this time that Christ was born, there was this anticipation, not just from the wise men, although they did anticipate, but just from mankind in general in that area, that something great's going to happen. and It's going to happen soon. Even the. A Jewish historian, Josephus, wrote in his volume, Wars of the Jews, that about that time, the Jews believed that one from their country should become governor of the habitable earth. And there, there is example after example of this. So think about when God says in the when Apostle Paul says in the epistles, just at the right time. There's a sense, even though we'll talk about this more next week, there's a sense in which the world missed him. But there's a sense in which the world was longing for him in their gut. Just like today, we long for the return and even sang about the day when the king will return and claim his own. So this is the time that Christ was born into. This idea that somebody's going to come, he's going to be great, and he's going to just rule over the entire world. And so it's into this context, context that the Magi come from the East. And we know that the Magi were kingmakers. They were so powerful. You couldn't even be a king in Persia without their permission. We saw that... Uh, that They traveled there by the providential hand of God, probably set up five or six hundred years in advance by the prophet Daniel, who was in Babylon at that time, shared the scriptures with fellow wise men. He rose himself in the courts and became head of the Magi because we know Daniel had a wisdom that they did not have. By the way, I didn't mention this last week either, but the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that he demanded an interpretation of. The the Magi said, no one has ever asked, no ruler, no king has ever asked us to give this kind of interpretation. Only the gods would know something like this. It just so happened that Daniel had access to the one and only God. And he was able to give the interpretation. What a testimony right there of the veracity of Jehovah as the one and only God. So here they come. Set up 500 years ago with this longing, Daniel sharing the scriptures, this promise that the God of the Bible made that he is going to send a king. He's going to send a Messiah and he'll make all things right. They kept that anticipation there. Many think that they were God fearing magi. 
Those that maybe didn't dabble so much in the sorcery, but trusted in the word of God. And they come to town and they want to know where is this king of the Jews because we want to worship him. And they were with exceeding joy. They anticipated that moment. But they were not the only characters in this story. This morning and next week, we'll do part one and part two. I want to look at the three kinds of people that we find in this context. <clears throat> we're going to look at those that are hostile toward God this morning. And then next week, we'll look at those who are indifferent to God, meaning that if you think about what is taking place and everybody has a sense that something great's going to happen, and yet they missed it. And even the fact that Herod, this blows my mind, Herod asked the Jews, what's going on here? What is this promise in Scripture about the king? Where is he to be born? And they searched the Scriptures and they tell him. And then they did what? Nothing. It just blows my mind. But the Magi went. The Gentiles went and worshipped. And then we'll also look at those uh, that are worshipful towards God. Those that will bring the gifts and bow before him. <clears throat> so let's read our text. Chapter 2, the first 12 verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So I want to look at this attitude of being hostile towards God. Verse 2 tells us that the wise men, they come into town in their great caravan. And they have this question and they're asking people this question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We want to worship him. So they're. Come upon a people, another people, and another group of people. And excuse me, do you know where the king has been born? And they're asking because they want to find him. And they are probably assuming, surely, if we're this close to where he's been born, somebody's got to know about this. 
Well, they had asked enough people and they had been there long enough for somebody to make their way back to Herod and let Herod know there are magi in town and they are asking about the king of the Jews. Verse 3 tells us Herod's response says that he was troubled by this. And that word basically means what we would define today as he flipped out at this news. He, he is mentally distraught. He is emotionally distraught. It's almost like when you get sick to your stomach at this, it, it's something that just affects you from head to toe adversely. And so he is very, very stirred up. It ripped through him like a lightning bolt. Why would Herod be so troubled at such seemingly a simple question? Herod's title, King of the Jews, had been given to him by the Romans. And so when these Magi kingmakers from the east come asking, well, where is the King of the Jews? It's almost as if to say, uh, where is the king of the Jews? And you're not him. <laughs> you're not it. Because we want to worship him. This greatly, greatly troubled him. And I'm sure Herod in his mind, he's thinking, how could this possibly be happening? Everybody knows I am the king of the Jews. And something is not right in the world if we have these kingmakers coming here asking this question. And not acknowledging the authority that I have in this position. So Herod immediately does what he does well. He goes into action. He begins to think about the impact of this. And in order to understand it a little better, I want to take a little time and go into a little background about this man, Herod. We're going to read about him Several times in the Gospel of Matthew. And by just taking a little time to do some historical work, every time we hear this name Herod, it, it, will, it will add more meaning to the text. So what kind of person was Herod? It's worth the time to think about this. Well, he was given that title by the Jews. Uh, Herod was not a Jew. In fact, he was um, an Edomite. He was a descendant from Esau. So he's kind of a distant relative or a neighbor to the Jew, but he is not Jewish by descent. The way he got this title from the Romans is basically by playing his cards right. Uh, Herod was a politician. He was a diplomat. He was a mover and a shaker. He knew how to work things to his advantage. And when I say uh, politician, I mean that in a, a derogatory way, um, as one who would manipulate people, manipulate things strictly for his own purposes and to his own advantage. And he was very, very good at it. He was very wise and very, very tactful. And so when the Romans came and they conquered Palestine, some people would take this as a great defeat. They would immediately stiffen up and say, to themselves, I am not cooperating in any way. These people are my enemies and I'm just longing for the day when we can we can kick them out of here and live life the way we're supposed to. Uh, some people take another approach 
when they've been overcome or conquered. And that is, hey, I'm going to make the best of it to, for, for my own means and my own purposes. And so he kind of kisses up to the Romans any opportunity that he has. If there's anybody that's in power, he makes himself available to them. He presents himself as a great helper to them so that he can uh, attain uh, easier lifestyle for himself. So it's not about loyalty to any people group or even to the land. He is really out for himself. And he's a schemer. Even Jesus recognized this by calling him a fox. What are Foxes are known for plotting, for scheming, for sneaking. And that's a perfect description of Herod. Before the birth of Christ, uh, Rome set up Herod's father Antipater. He was also a politician and he was looking to capitalize on this time with the Romans and put himself in a position of power, which he did. And so he was a kind of a governor over Judea. And Herod is his son and Herod's even better at it. Better schemer than his father was. He finally gains the trust of the Romans. And they put him as Tetrarch over Galilee. Somebody's not happy. So they eventually trusted him to put him in in this great position of power. Is everything all right? Sounds like mom just has the magic touch. I think. So Herod is making himself available to the Romans. Well, in in 40 B.C., there was this little skirmish that happened. The Romans are in control. It's Palestine. And the people in the east, we've been talking about the Magi and so forth, they break out in a civil war and they're trying to gain more land and gain more power. They're not really a threat to Rome yet, but they would like to be. And they encroach in the Palestine area. And so that's Herod's territory and that's Rome's territory. So Herod runs to Rome and he says, look, this is going on. He's a he's an informant and he wants to. He wants to serve them. And he says, actually, I think I with your permission, I think I could handle this. These are my people. I know them very well. I know what's going on here. And if I just had a little bit of authority and a little bit of muscle, uh, I could take care of this for you. And I would gladly serve you in this way. So he wins the trust of the Romans thinking, I guess, what do we have to lose? His father served us. So, Herod, we're going to give you this title. King of the Jews, and here's an army. Go take and do what you need to do to get rid of these potential rebellions and skirmishes. It's not good for the empire. We don't want these kind of things. And lo and behold, Herod goes, and he is uh, quite a person. He's got a good mind, and he turns out to be a great military leader. And within three years, he has this situation under control. And this place is... um, you know, Judea, Palestine is kind of like the wild, what we would consider the Wild West. I mean, there's always people after the enemies. There's always little skirmishes. There's always little rebellions. There's this unrest here. People are very, very set in their ways, just like we see today. But he goes in there and he even gains the trust of the Romans more because he brought peace into a place where there was no peace. And he was able, for the most part, to maintain it. And so he, he gains this title. Not only is it given to him by the Romans, but he earns it in a sense because he has taken command for their sake and for his sake over this area. 
Herod was very skilled, very, very capable. So we think about Herod, we think about the evil side of Herod. But before I talk about the wicked and evil side of Herod, which is mostly what Scripture talks about, it's only fair if we're going to think about him that we know who the person was. So that when his name comes up in Scripture, we have an idea of what people would be thinking about Herod. Skilled politician, smart guy, great military leader, could accomplish things that others couldn't. Uh, wielded his authority with great power, shrewd Diplomat. The Romans loved him because he had this tax collecting system and he was very effective at it, at it, made himself wealthy, was always giving the tax money to the Romans. They thought this was a great situation. Uh, he was a great builder. He grow, he, he built um, Masada, which is still stands today. I visited there. He built a grand palace for himself. He built what we know of as Herod's temple, which is what the Jews worshipped in during the days of Jesus and was later destroyed in 70 A.D. Uh, he also did some good things, believe it or not. Times got really hard at a point in history. People were starving to death. So he graciously gave them some of their tax money back so that they could put food on the tables. And one time... He even melted some metals from his palace, some precious metals, so that he could give some of the money to the very, very poor. He instituted some kind of welfare system. So very smart, very capable. But he would do whatever he needed to do to maintain his kingship, to maintain his power. And that's where the evil side of him kicks in. He realizes in his shrewd mind that this little question, where is he who is king of the Jews, spoken by the Magi who are kingmakers, is, could be potentially very dangerous. Because he already knows people don't like Rome, they hate Rome, and they hate him specifically because he represents the opposition. So there's always these little conspiracies going around. People are always plotting and scheming against him. He realizes this. So he sees, wait a minute, if these kingmakers come here, ask them these questions. And people rally around them. And now you have the whole Eastern Empire coming against me. This is not good. So he wants to do what he can to get rid of the opposition or to, to get the upper hand in this situation. By the way, they believe that he was about 70 years of age during this time, but still very, very hungry for power. He absolutely loved it. He didn't want anything threatening it. He didn't want let, to let go of anything. So he needed to, uh, to get this rumor. He needed to quiet this talk about another king, a competition king, as quickly as possible. That's why he's troubled. That's why it, this news struck him in that way. He saw the ramifications in his scheming mind. So his evil mind was stirred into action. How evil was Herod? He was basically a crazed maniac. All the historians tell us that he was extremely jealous of his power and his position. And when you put that kind of crazed jealousy and power together, it's never a good combination. 
So he spends much of his career plotting and planning and scheming how to get rid of those who threaten his power. That's what much of his career consisted of. Trying to figure out how can I keep my position and also get away with killing others off. Sometimes he didn't get away with it. It's just a matter of usurping his power. So to give an example, the Hasmoneans were a whole family of Jewish people. They were descendants from the Maccabees. You've heard of the Maccabees that revolted against the Greek Empire. Herod says, I don't like this family that are known for revolting. And so he has the whole family killed. Descendants of the Maccabees. He had ten wives, twelve children. One of his wives' brothers happened to be the high priest of Jerusalem at that time, of the Jews. He didn't like that. He felt threatened by that, that power that he had. And so he schemes a way for him to be killed. He has this pool party down at Jericho, the oasis. And he coaxes the high priest, finally gets him to come to the, agree to come to the party, finally gets him to, to agree to get into the water. He has some men standing by there. They're splashing around, having lots of fun. The high priest goes out. They have lots of fun splashing. The people don't realize it, but a lot of splashing is them drowning the high priest. People don't even realize what's going on. And then he has a funeral. Of course, it's Herod's wife's brother. Herod speaks very elegantly and he weeps the whole time at this funeral. So sorry to see this man go. Didn't do a lot of good because then later on he has that same wife murdered. And then he has the mother of the wife and the high priest murdered because he doesn't want to hear any opposition about you killed my daughter and my son. This is the kind of man he was. He had many sons, but a little later on, there were two in particular sons where he had killed just in case they got power hungry for his throne. Five days later, a third son was killed for the very same reason. So you see, this twisted mind was always at work, very jealous, feeling very threatened because he loved his kingdom. He loved his power. And even he would not allow his family. Any of his wives or sons or kids in any way to threaten it or to wedge it out of his grip. So he is basically cruel. He's a maniac and he's a bloodthirsty ruler. As it said, as a matter of fact, in the 70s, when he was pretty sure certain he was going to die, he tells his men to go out. And to gather some very, very prominent Jewish people, popular Jewish people. So that they said, and then he says, when I die, I want you to kill him. Because I know that when I die, there will be no mourning in the city. And I want mourning in the city on the day that I die. That's the way he thought. So against this knowledge of Herod that we have, you see now the Magi come and they say, where is he who's king of the Jews? All of this is what's going on. The context in which Jesus was born, this mixture of a longing for someone to rule in righteousness, a longing to be freed from the chains of bondage and yet still evil, very much reigning and ruling in different people's hearts and minds. Very political, politically charged atmosphere he was born into. 
So, yes, Herod was troubled. And then verse three says, and all Jerusalem with him. Well, yeah. What were they troubled? Why was Jerusalem troubled at the fact that these wise men come asking about a king? Are they worried about this little baby? Not at all. We'll see next week that they're pretty much indifferent about this. What are they troubled? They're worried about what this maniac Herod's going to do because they know how he thinks. They know that heads are going to roll. They know that this means a bloodbath for somebody because that's just who Herod is. So they're all at, uh, un at ease with the response of this maniac. And then just cheating a little bit and going ahead, we see what he does in his scheming. We see Herod's evil worked out. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, and we read the passage, becomes furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. That's his remedy. That's, that's the extent that he will go to, to preserve what's his. His crown and his kingdom. He even... Plays games and tries to outsmart the wise man by inquiring about the star. Where is the star? I'm interested in these things as well. And I would really love to worship this king as well. Can you tell me, give me a little more details. When did you see it in the sky? Why did he want that information? Just to know how many people he had to kill to make sure his kingdom wasn't threatened. I mean, this guy's an evil man. So you put all this together. We consider the, the responses to the heralding of this news that a king has been born of a Jews. This promised Messiah has come into the world. And you see this response. One such response as personified in Herod the king. And that is hostility towards God. And Matthew wants to know. Here we are just in chapter 2. He wants us to know as we read that the world that Jesus was born into wasn't perfect and that everybody, even though there was this longing for him, they did not embrace him and receive him. That from the very beginning, he faced hostility before he was even barely a toddler. People seeking his life. And there's this attitude. Not everybody warmly receives God. Not everybody warmly receives the rule of God. But there's something that bristles up into us and says, no, mine. And you can't have it. What is our response to the news that Jesus is the king? Hostility, indifference or worship? We all have our own response. Jesus didn't care that. I mean, Herod didn't care that. If Jesus was God or not, he didn't care if this was true or not. All he could think about was the threat it posed to him. Facts didn't matter. He wants his rule. He likes calling the shots and he wants to call the shots. He likes the power. He likes being able to bark orders. He likes controlling his life and setting everything in its place the way Herod wants it. And any threat to that becomes an enemy, period. No qualms about it. He is a king that does not want to bow to another. 
Now, if we take that historical realm or context and we move it over into the spiritual realm of attitudes, we we see it personified in Herod. But do we see the same kind of attitude in others? We will. As a matter of fact, Herod missed Jesus. He did not kill this threat. But who eventually picks up the mantle of hostility and does kill this king? But the Jewish people, the rulers. But if you take this attitude of hostility, we see that it lives. We see that there in every generation are people that are hostile toward God. It's not that they don't believe that he exists or they deny him. That's not even the point, whether he exists or not. The point is this. He threatens my kingdom. He threatens my control. He wants to call the shots and overrule me or be my authority. And I absolutely refuse to have any part of any being or power that wants to do that in my life. It's this attitude of hostility. And so people scheme and they lie and they destroy to protect their own little kingdoms. To protect the way they want to be manifested to the world to their family, to their friends. Yes, people still feel that way today. Jesus is an interference. Whether he's real or not, he's an interference. A bother. One who would come in with his teaching and his code and upset mine. The life I have going for myself. And so there is a rejection In the hearts of men to not to want to have to answer to this king. We see it in all different kinds of forms. We see it in different degrees. Have you noticed the direction that our culture is taken? And it's right in line with history. There's evil in every culture. There's hostility against God in every culture. Well, the the way that we're experiencing it in our culture are the things that we read about in the headlines. What's the big news? Well, a lot of the hostility towards God today is experienced through Christians because Christians represent Christ. Christ is against evil. So a lot of things that we see today, a lot of the battles that so-called in taking a stand for what's right and taking a stand for the teachings of Christ. The Christians often feel the brunt of that. Because they're the ones like Jesus who would stand in the way and say, wait a minute, stop. This isn't right. This isn't according to God. It's not righteous and this is harmful to the world. And we can't take this path. We can't go down that those tracks because it's a train wreck waiting to happen. And what's happening in our culture today is a lot of these big issues, say like abortion, that started out with that. Of course, just in my generation, abortion was the big thing for years. And then it came into homosexuality and then same-sex marriage and now transgenderism. And by the way, it's not going to stop there. If you think it's going to stop there, we're, we're foolish. Because when you remove the boundaries that have been in place for so long that tell us what's right and wrong and what we can and can't do, you take those out of, out of the way, what's there to stop anything? I just recently read that the National Institute of Health, they, I'm not sure that they did remove the ban. I think they want to remove the ban on experimenting with 
uh, genetics and so forth between humans and animals. Possibly creating some kind of hybrid. Uh, but the, it's cloaked in the idea that, well, we can grow human parts in animals. And what would be pretty neat, because then if you need your heart, we can go to the pig and get it out of the heart of the cow, whatever. Uh, I mean, th- th- there, are bound, there are ethical boundaries that when you remove a sense of a foundation, what, what can happen? The sky's the limit. I say all that to to help us realize, have you noticed who just quickly became the enemy to what the direction that our culture wants to go in? Who is often standing in the way and say, wait a minute, you shouldn't do that or you can't do that or that's not right, Christians. I don't know if you realize it, but Christians are, are becoming public enemy number one because we're kind of standing in the tracks and here's the train coming. Blowing its whistle and we're saying, wait a minute, no, please don't go down here. Uh, we, we know things from God's word and this isn't good for anybody. And we are becoming the enemy. That's why Chuck Colson said that the big fight of our day will be religious liberties, religious freedom. And it is being undermined as I speak. Christ and his teaching stand in the way evil desires. And Jesus says in John 15, the Bible always tells it like it is. If the world hates you, don't be surprised. They hated me. And when you go out, they'll hate you. And they'll put you in prison. And they'll kill you. And they'll think they're serving God. In other words, they're going to be absolutely convinced they're doing the right thing. By persecuting you. As if they're serving God when they do it. Don't be surprised at these things. It's hatred. It's hostility. In, the, in, in this form. And we see it even today. Herod's just maybe the first in the Christmas story to have an opportunity to act on it. Saul also did it. To the point of the intervention where God said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Hostility toward God can be found in a lot of different forms and degrees. Even among those who say, oh, I worship him and I love him and I have devoted my life to him. Jesus says or comes with this code or this ethic or this teaching that to find your life, you have to give it. It's not about self-preservation. Sometimes you have to do the unnatural thing. It's about giving, giving your life. It's not about setting up your kingdom. Isn't it interesting that the command to God, uh, to, from God to man, the cultural mandate is to go out and take dominion. Be kings and queens of this earth that I have given you. Use the powers and the abilities. But what's the first command of all? But to always bow down before the rightful king. So. Take dominion, and the first step of taking dominion is to bow down and worship me. It's the greatest command. That's part of it. It has to be. Jesus the King threatens the world, threatens even our own little kingdoms, even as Christians. I don't know about you, but there are things that Christ speaks into my life. Where he says, that's got to go. Or, you need to add this. 
And that hostility says, but I don't want to. You know, is, is Christ really our king? How about the times where there's ministry opportunities and we're prompted? And we, we've been telling God all week in our devotions, I'm willing to serve you in any way you desire. And then we're prompted to fulfill this opportunity. Uh, but God, I didn't have that in mind when I said I was willing to serve you in any way that you needed me. You know, mission field, short term, long term. Who's on the throne? Is there hostility? And sometimes the hostility might be, not be so aggressive as Herod, of course, but it can just be simple neglect of the things that we know brings us life. Of the things that we know puts Christ on the throne. So it's kind of like somebody saying, hey, you're, 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 you're coming unplugged here. Your cord's about to come unplugged and you know you run out of energy and power if it's unplugged. And we just say, oh, okay. And keep going on with our lives. So we, we just allow the devotions to go. We allow the Bible studies to go. We just neglect them. Our time of worship. We came here this morning and we began to worship. And I thought, man, this is... I'm trying to figure out one of the reasons I like church so much. Uh, I have not experienced God all week like I experience Him here. And I'm trying to figure out why, but... Look how many times we've been reminded of the truths and the goodness of God. Just packed in one service. I mean, Sunday school teaching. And then we sing song after song. And it's, it's, it's a hundred different reminders of His promises, of His goodness. I can't even do that to my own brain during the week in, in my study. So I'm just, I'm hit from every angle of the truth of God and, and how comforting it is. And it's just so refreshing. It's so good. <clears throat> Hostility toward God. So we just want to be reminded as we think about this real person, Herod, and his hostility. So we think about this idea of, of perhaps hostility in our own hearts. Where do we stand? How much do we love this king of the Jews? How much do we love the own king, our own kingdom in the life that we've set up for ourselves? Are we willing to give it up? Or do we build it on our ground and not Christ's? We build it on Christ's ground. It's always his to come and go. And sometimes Jesus or God tells us hard things. Uh, sooner or later we'll hear about that like in Jonah. Here's this God-fearing person. Worshipper of God wants to serve him. God says, Jonah, here's my plan for you. And Jonah says, that's not my plan for me. I'm out of here. That's hostility towards the will of God. It's hostility toward the reign of God. The opposite of that is, of course, God's goodness and welfare, well-being for our lives while we're here on earth. And that's what we want. But more than anything, we are here. We are created to worship Jesus the King. And it pleases God the Father for us to absolutely adore Him and hold Him in great awe and reverence and respect. And so it's just an encouragement and a reminder for us to bow our hearts before the rightful King. Lay down our weapons. 
Lay down the little skirmishes and schemes that we may have of trying to figure out how can I worship God and get my own way at the same time because I really want this. Just lay it down and embrace the son that God has sent into the world for us today. May God bless the preaching of his word. Amen.